Archdiocese of Sioux Falls Office of Adult Faith Formation, this is the Prairie Rome Companion with Dr. Chris Bergwald. Hello, this is Dr. Chris Bergwald. Welcome to the third part of a special edition of Prairie Rome Companion. Uh, it's the third part of the presentation why we do what we do at Mass, given by Father Joseph Fox at a recent Faith for Life event in the Diocese of Sioux Falls. I hope you enjoy this presentation, and may God bless you. That's why they call it the Liturgy of the Hours. You know, the question is, is the Liturgy of the Hours public worship? You say, they call it Liturgy because it's Liturgy. Okay, that's a good one. It's a good question. You say, we want to take seriously the language that we use, you know, you say, because... The liturgy is not just the sacraments, it's not just the Eucharist, but it does include also things like the liturgy of the hours. It includes things like funerals. It includes things like um, Eucharistic adoration when it is done in the manner that has been laid down by the church. Even when it's done privately, you can't do it privately any more than the, than the president can sign a law, in, you know, a, a bill into law. When he signs it, he can't do that privately. The nature of the act is that it's public. Why? Because he's deputed to do that in that manner. So if you do the liturgy of the hours, the church says for the laity, the, the laity, this has been a question, can the laity pray the liturgy of the hours or do they just do the prayer? Do you follow what I'm saying? Is it liturgy or is it private prayer? The church has said, no, we will accept that the laity can participate that liturgically. They, the church is allowing you to be deputed even though it's not giving you the obligation that would be with someone who is deputed. So clergy, priests, deacons, bishops, are deputed by the church to do this and have an obligation to do the liturgy of the hours. And they must do it the way the church lays it out. Otherwise, it's not liturgy. If you don't do what lawful authority has said you do when you do these acts, then you haven't done a liturgy. You've done your own thing. Do you follow? So when we look at the Mass and we have a priest who decides he's going to make up his own prayers and have his own sequence and his own little ritual and everything else, every step away from what he should be doing is less and less the worship that Jesus gives to the Father. And more and more, his own private worship. Now, the tendency is to think public and private. If we're doing it all together, it's public. Remember, public in this sense here is that you have to be deputed, do it in the name of the church, and do it according to the acts that were laid out. That's what makes it public. When we pray together, we, you know, we pray the rosary. We all, okay, everybody get out your rosary. We're going to play the rosary now. You say, that is not liturgy. That is private, communal worship. That's the private worship of a community. But if we pray the liturgy of the hours together, we have done the liturgy. If we do the Mass, 
We have done the liturgy. If I celebrate the Mass alone, you know, in my uh, hotel room, that is the liturgy. I am deputed by the Church. As long as I do what the Church says I'm supposed to do in celebrating the Mass, we have a public act of worship. Does that help? This is the basis. You know, say before we can get and look at what's happening in the Mass, we have to start with that understanding of what's going on there. All of these concepts are integral to understanding what is the Mass all about. Because what we will see in the celebration of the Mass is that everyone has a role to which they have been deputed. Everyone has a role to which they have been deputed. And we are all participating in the worship that Jesus gives to the Father as his agents. We are making him present and active in the world through this worship that we are offering to the Father in the, the Eucharist. Do you follow? Everybody has a role. They are deputed to do that by baptism or confirmation or holy orders. Very specific acts. And our participation in that is meant to be actuosa. That means we're freely choosing to be there, do that, participate in it. Interiorly, uniting ourselves to what Jesus is doing. Are you with me? Because then when we look at the Mass, the first thing we will look at then is the fact it usually begins with a procession. Huh? Don't, doesn't it? Wherever the priest is or whatever. You say, no, it doesn't begin with a procession. Or the procession is not that one. Because somehow or other you guys ended up there. Was that just by accident? Uh, they put this thing up on the board, you know, every Sunday at these times we're going to be here. You know, good luck if you get here, kind of a thing. No, you just say, somehow you are already responding to a call. So much so that when we look at that being a response to the call, the vocatio, that the church is called an assembly. These are people who have been called to be present. They have freely chosen to come. The mission now is going to be played out. Everyone will have their role and function. Are you with me? It begins with the procession because it is a process. And this Eucharist is an unfolding of redemption. It is an unfolding of redemption. You are called there, you leave the world and enter into heaven. You know the field of dreams, if you build it they will come? That's about the liturgy. You come out of the world, you enter into this world here, and all about you are the angels and saints in heaven worshiping together with you because it is the whole church 
head and members, worshiping the Father in his Son, Jesus Christ. In that process, in that procession, this kind of blew me away. I, you know, I've been teaching this for about 30 years now. I, I learned something from every group, from every uh, class that, uh, of students that I have. This happened rather early on. Thank you, Jesus. Uh, I had a, an Ethiopian seminarian, a Coptic, separate right in the church separate church in our church. We don't think of our church as being a church of churches, but it is. He explained to me what we would talk about as the sacristy, or wherever they gathered first, you know, the priests and everything, because the people are in the church, you say, wherever they begin is Bethlehem. And where are they going? To Jerusalem, because a procession is an orderly movement. It is purposeful movement. It's movement with a purpose in mind. We know where we are going. We know where we are. We know where we are going. We know how we are going to get there. This is not just movement, willy-nilly, whatever, spontaneous or whatever. This is planned, purposeful movement. And the movement for them within the Coptic rite, is from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. When you go to church, whenever you come for the Eucharist, to think that you came from Bethlehem and are going to Jerusalem, whoa, we're back to, now it's interesting, they start with the birth of Jesus. We would go further, wouldn't we? Wouldn't we say it's from Nazareth where Mary conceives Jesus all the way to the right hand of the Father? That this process, this Eucharistic process, the unfolding of God's drawing us to himself in the proper relationship of worship that can happen only in his son, that process we have to see where we begin, where are we going. The introductory part is over, so different book, okay? A modest one. They call it, on this is the sacramentary, the, this is the book that we use for the celebration of Mass. And there are a couple of other books to draw to your attention. One is this general instruction of the Roman Missal. The germ, some people prefer to call it the germ, but it's G-I-R-M from, you know, we like acronyms. Uh, The germ, the general instruction on the Roman Missal. Roman Missal the general instruction about the Roman Missal, okay? This, remember when we were talking about the munus, we were saying the worship that is given in the name of the church 
by persons who are deputed through the acts that have been established by lawful authority. These are the acts for the celebration of Mass. If you want to know what is supposed to be done, here are the instructions. Okay? What is supposed to be done is here, and it's also here in this book. They put the instructions of what should be done in red print. My mic. Oh, I fell. I fell for you. Go ahead. So, the train was derailed. <laughs> ah, it's in red print. Just so that you know the difference between what you say and the instructions that would surround it of what you're supposed to do. So they call that red print the rubrics, from the Latin word for red, what's in red, the stuff in red, the rubrics. Those are the little indications that tell you what you should do. Now, what I want to do is say, you will find a lot of insights into why we do what we do in this book here. This is what the church considers what must be done. This does not contain the rubrics because as you go along celebrating the Mass, you need a little extra push. You need to say, to connect with this, which is... See how it fits in there so nicely? Huh? It's up here in the front. And as you're going through, you wouldn't know. So they take things complementary effectively because... This is very confusing. I just thought I would be upfront, honest, sincere, you know, straightforward, uh, transparent with you. This is very confusing. Even more confusing. Oh, one thing at a time. <laughs> so, this here... When um, you look at this general instruction, it has all kinds of chapters. They have one on the importance and dignity of the Eucharistic celebration, chapter 1. Chapter 2, the structure of the Mass, its elements and parts. Now that's more or less what I think Chris wanted me to come and do. He wanted me to come and explain to you why we do what we do at the Mass. That's what he told me. And I've avoided it so far. But <laughs> <laughs> then it says, chapter 3, the duties and ministries in the Mass. Straightforward. So they talk about the duties of those in holy orders, the duties of the people of God, particular ministries, distribution of the duties, and the preparation of the celebration. 
Now remember, we already had a whole bunch on the structure of the mass, its parts and elements and everything else. Now they kind of like go over it again, but they do it from a different point of view. Now you see why I say it's confusing, it's complicated, it's difficult. Now the next chapter, the different forms of celebrating mass. What, we did, what was it we did in 1, 2, and 3? Well, now we have different forms of how that's done. With a, with a congregation, a celebration, mass at which only one minister participates, and some general norms for all forms of mass. It gets more complicated. The arrangement, and this is chapter 5, the arrangement and furnishings of the churches for the celebration of the Eucharist. The arrangement and furnishings. So that would include things like the sanctuary, the arrangement of the church, so the altar, its appointments, the ambo, the chair, other seats, everything, that. The arrangements of the church, places for the faithful, for the choir, musical instruments, reservation of all the Eucharist, sacred images, Chapter 5. Chapter 6. The requisites for the celebration of Mass. You thought we would have already covered it maybe four or five times before this. What's included here? Bread and wine for celebrating the Eucharist. Sacred furnishings in general. We, didn't we just have a chapter on sacred furnishings before? Well, now we've got another one here. Don't forget when you're reading that chapter, there's another one coming up. Okay. Sacred vessels, sacred vestments, other things intended for church use. Chapter 7, the choice of the Mass and its parts. We did the structure, the elements and parts in Chapter 2, and now we have the choice of the Mass and its parts. You kind kind of pick and choose. They make that clear. That's not the way it works. Chapter 8, Masses and Prayers for Various Circumstances and Masses for the Dead. That's not part of the choice of Mass in its parts. It's a different chapter. Now, I am begging and pleading on behalf of all priests everywhere, please be patient with us as we try to get this all committed to heart. We may make a mistake. That is, we may do something that you don't find in here. It's not necessarily intentional. If I can forget my sister's name on occasion, I can forget something here. Are you with me? So the presumption is not necessarily that it was intentionally omitted or messed up. But it can happen. It is complicated, but it's also very helpful to read. And I tell my students, the seminarians, it's very helpful for them, if they want to get through the course, that they would read this. I want to recommend it to you. It will give you a great insight into why we do what we do. Now, for people who don't like reading this and like to do what they like to do, there's this book, and this is the Holy See responding to questions that came in over the last many years about what are clearly abuses of this.
okay? Different things that happened. And so this came out to address some of them. Don't think it addresses all of them. Some of the things that are abuses of what this says, you won't find in here. And some things that you find in here, you never experienced. Thank Jesus. Okay? Does this help? This is on your table. Chris made copies for you. It's very interesting, but remember, this is kind of giving you an understanding of the Eucharist from what you shouldn't do and why you should do things the right way. Okay? Is this helpful? The difference between these two books. This is trying to get us back on track. One of the things not in here, and that might be very near and dear, at least it seems this way when I go around the country. At the Our Father, I, maybe you don't do it out here. What, what do you do at the Our Father? Hold hands? No. Say it isn't true. <laughs> Not in here. Not in here. I think that um, on those other pages that you had before, remember, if you could look. Oh, it's not there. I'm sorry. I want to read you something, okay? It's on the page right after the one I gave you. In Canon 846, the liturgical books approved by the competent authority... The liturgical books approved by the competent authority are to be faithfully observed in the celebration of the sacraments. Therefore, this is the kicker, no one on personal authority may add, remove, or change anything in them. I'll defy any of you if you can find holding hands at the Our Father here or here in the rubrics, or in any other liturgical book. It just ain't there. For those of you of English grammar, it isn't there. <laughs> it's just not there. Adding it would be going contrary to what competent authority has laid out. Ah, why did we do it all these years? And I like holding those hands, you know? <laughs> why did we do it? Because, now you say, this is after some, a, a lot of looking into this. Now, I would ask you, but you couldn't tell me anyway how many of you are at AA, but there might be two or three of you here. I don't know, there could be 50 at the way, <laughs> looking around the room. You know, say... <laughs> However, you just say, one of the things we do at the end of the meeting, I, <laughs> we all join hands, you know, 
and pray to the power that's greater than us. Well, some of us were priests. And gee, that's, that's a great thing to do, you know. I, I really feel good when, we, when I get back to the church. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try it out during the week, you know. We're going to have everybody at the Our Father join hands. Good enough for the week, good enough for the Sunday, too. I know you guys don't want to do it, but this really shows our unity. This really shows we're together in this. What was the sign of peace about? Huh? When we go around hugging everybody, what is that one about? You know, see, there's an interesting principle about the Latin liturgy, the Roman liturgy, the liturgy that we celebrate, and that is, you will find also in the, the documents of the Second Vatican Council, it is characterized by a noble simplicity. And in the renewal, they wanted, they specifically set out to eliminate repetitions, needless, needless repetition. Some of you might be old enough, that is my age or older, to remember the Mass celebrated prior to 1965, where the priest would be doing this almost all the time, you know, as a part of... We had certain signs and gestures we would do over and over again. So that's not really typical of the Roman liturgy. The Roman liturgy is characterized by a noble simplicity. You do it once, and that's usually pretty good. You know, so the fact that we have, and, and this I find also amusing, at the beginning of Mass, I go to some parishes, and you have people, oh, okay, everybody want to welcome everyone here. Some of you, you know, that come far away and everything and welcome. Why don't you turn around and, you know, say hello to the guy next to you, you know, just a good old, you know, down-home family welcome. You know, we want everybody to be at, you know, home here, you know. This is all before in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you know. Then we're going to go and do it again at the Kiss of Peace. And while we're at it, grab them hands, ladies and gentlemen, because this is the Our Father. You say, well, this gets a little nutsy. And I don't know about you guys out here in this part of the plains, but very many people like you elsewhere, we don't like touching You can get your jollies some other way, you know? <laughs> now, I respect you and everything, but, you know, keep it together there, you know? <laughs> and there are gestures that are specific to the role that we, that we play within the celebration. Remember, it is this public worship through acts that have been determined by lawful authority. Now, and I'm sure you've heard it from priests, and they know everything, you know, you say that when you do the Our Father, what's the matter with you people? You know, in the early church, we all used to use the correct prayer position 
Extend your hands. Let's see it, folks. Come on, everybody. Want to see those hands up there? Because we're going to pray the Our Father. Unfortunately, this book says that's the priestly gesture. And Father was quite correct. In the early church, everybody may have done that gesture, what they called the Orans gesture. Except at Mass, if I am not adding, removing, or changing anything that's in the book, then I'm not going to tell you, okay, get them up. You're under arrest. No, you have to sit, grab each other's hands. And I want to see a chain in this whole church. I want to see an unbroken chain of everybody united to pray the Our Father. Won't find it here. You won't. Now it's kind of like we've been enlightened, so now if we do this or we continue to do this, now we're going to feel... Yeah, awesome. you need to say, I was, it was the most amusing thing. Well, not, not amusing, it was, it's kind of sad actually, but I was in, in San Diego with some friends, and I was staying at this parish. We went out, and I was going to, I was going to come back and can celebrate with the priest, but I got back too late. So I was attending Mass in the congregation. But I was in a part that was far away from everybody else. And uh, I'm just watching, you know, <laughs> taking it all in. You know, some of you probably have relatives out there in California. <laughs> what is it, the land of fruits and nuts? You know, <laughs> the, the granola state, you know? <laughs> you say that. When, I shouldn't say these things if it's being recorded. I know, I'm sorry. That, <laughs> They are very, God help us, they are wonderful people. You're just saying that they're into holding hands out there. I want you to know that. And they take it darn serious, really serious. And there was somebody that was visiting, clearly a foreigner, you know, who was in that church. And they were refusing to hold hands. And there was hell to pay. There was hell to pay. Now, why didn't somebody tell them, you know? And what are you doing? Why aren't you taking my hand? What's the matter with you? I've, I'm watching this. You say, this is <laughs> before communion. What a beautiful way to prepare for Jesus, you know? <laughs> Whoa! Why do our priests do what they do? They are liberated. They don't need... No institutional church telling them what they ought to do. Because why? We're the church right here. And that's the way we do things here. You say, fine, you're the church. You do the things the way you want to do but I want to connect you back to what we had said about this. And whose worship is it? It is the worship that Jesus gives to his Father. And the only one that can commit the whole church to an action 
that is verified as Jesus' action is going to be the supreme authority of the church on earth, the Pope. If he agreed with them, what do you say? Wait, let's start. If they had asked the Pope, can we do this? Will you agree that this is okay? And he said, yes, there's no problem, because then it would be one of those acts that have been approved by lawful authority. But it's not. There's a certain antagonism that is being brought up. And not necessarily by bad... These are not bad people. I don't want in any way to give the impression these are bad, evil people. But they have picked up a different concept, a different idea that does not correspond, and I say this is not with Father Fox, this corresponds with the church. What I have given you so far is not me. That I can show you in the law of the church and in its official pronouncements that this is the way it is. Now, they have a different idea and everything. Okay, I respect their different idea, except... It's their idea. That happened. You probably never have been, you know, run into that before, right? That people have a different idea about the way things ought to be. You know, <laughs> that's life. I'm sorry. Is the worship that is given? nullified when we add or change something in the liturgy. Depends a lot on what is changed. I want to answer you, say this one question, you say this, the, the hand-holding is one of my bugaboos, and that's me, that's me, okay? Um, just so you know, that Cardinal Arinze, who is responsible for the liturgy in the church, that's, the Pope has entrusted him with that responsibility together with the other cardinals who are part of the Congregation for Divine Worship and the Discipline of the Sacraments. It's his responsibility. On at least two occasions, the question has come up about the holding of hands. And his reaction has been, I'm not going to battle over that one. Does that mean it's okay? Now, I could be wrong. Some of you are parents here. Occasionally, your children don't do what they tell you, what you tell them. What you, they tell you is more like it. Occasionally, they don't do what you tell them to do. Does that happen? Do you get on them for every one of them? Why not? Aren't you serious parents? Don't you care? Don't you love your children? What's the matter with you? You lay down a law and then you don't, you don't back it up? Cowards? <laughs> you have to choose your battles. You choose your battles. In this particular area, you know, and it's an interesting thing with the liturgy, many of the things are not going to affect the validity of the act. Validity. What do we mean by Validity. In validity, we're talking about producing an effect which we intend. Producing an effect which we intend. You say, what is the intention? What is the 
effect Jesus wants to accomplish in the liturgy. Liturgy, what is it that Jesus wants to accomplish in the liturgy? What is it? What is the liturgy? Worship. What does he want to accomplish? What's the effect he wants to accomplish in giving this public worship? He wants to effect true worship of the Father. No? That's the point. The whole point of this, and it is relationship, it is all of these other things, because you can think of a hundred ways of saying that. You can. But the point is that he wants to effect real worship. Now, when somebody goes off board here and there, or overboard, or whatever, it doesn't necessarily mean that that worship has been compromised. But we do see when it's done intentionally, done intentionally, contrary to what this is, we begin to have some serious problems. You know, you say that, I don't know, you tell your kids don't smoke. I'll beat you, I'll beat the snot out of you if you do that, you know. Well, then you don't do it. You know? <laughs> well, it's probably a good thing you don't, you know, but just say that that doesn't end the relationship necessarily, but it begins to undermine. When they do things intentionally to get your goat, we got a problem. We got a problem. We need to work on that. And that is happening in the church today, and that's why we get documents like this. The church is saying, wait a minute, folks, we really have got to get back on the same page. In the minds of certain priests and certain people, you know, they would. Like between you and I? Nah. No, but you will find certain people who have cranked up the rhetoric in that way. Most people, is, you know, I presume they're like you. Normal people faithful, wanting to do the right thing, and you'll get some cranks. You can get some very vocal, usually the cranks are the more vocal ones in any event, huh? It happens. Are we more or less on the same page right now? You're going to have a variation of practice. Certain things, you know, if they're not going to use bread and wine, you're not going to have a Eucharist. If they're not going to use the words of institution, this is my body, this is my blood, we're not going to have a Eucharist, huh? Whatever else they want to call it, it's not that, you know. But normally, they operate more or less within boundaries. We would like it if they would really have that love of celebrating the worship that Jesus gives to the Father a little closer to what the church says is that worship. It would be nicer, you know? You'd like kids that, you know, were... You didn't have to tell them all the rules because they just knew your heart. They knew in their own heart, actually, 
what it is they ought to do. That's what you long for, a mature response. This is now about the third version that we've had since the Second Vatican Council. Some changes, and they're not all that big, the changes and everything, but they are changes, and so you pay attention to what's going on. And Some people just can't endure this at all. Okay, the church says, well, if you want to use the Tridentine rite and everything, we'll make special provisions. Okay. You have a, the authority of the church basically wanting to work with people, huh? Using homemade bread. It's a problem because, you know, bread for the Eucharist in the Latin rite for validity must be wheat, flour, and water. When you start adding those very special ingredients like yeast or raisins, or pumpernickel, and all of those other good things that are necessary for salvation that we then have just departed from it being valid matter. Okay? The problem is when you get those recipes that like kind of skate along the edge. There are no raisins or pumpernickel, but you're not really sure what's in there. Okay? It's a problem. Anyway, we were back at the Mass. Do you remember? And it says that for the introductory rites, the purpose of these rites is to help the assembled people to become a worshiping community and to prepare them for listening to God's word and celebrating the Eucharist. Now I'm going to treat you as if you were the celebrant of the Mass. You don't usually think of yourselves in that way, and I'm glad. That's a good and holy thing. Don't think of it this way too often, okay? But we talked about you being assembled. And when you came to church, what did you do? Quickly, just simple, obvious things. Oh, some of you bless yourselves with holy water, reminding yourself of your baptism. That was foremost in your mind, wasn't it? Yeah, of my baptism. You know, because by baptism, I am deputed to celebrate this worship together with Jesus. That's what came to mind when I blessed myself coming into church, right? Then what happened? You gen- Why? Now, I want you, you have that paper that I gave you before, right in front of you, no? Uh, 834, the very first one. It says, in the sacred liturgy, which is indeed the exercise of the priestly office of Jesus Christ, right? In it, through sensible signs, the sanctification of humankind is signified and effected in a manner proper to each of the signs. What does that mean? This was a sign, was it not? And it says that you are being sanctified in a manner that is appropriate to the sign. That says those signs have meaning. And that the meaning is a part of the way of sanctifying you. 
the sign itself, that water, that gesture, that commonality of doing that with everyone else. When I genuflected, there is something that it should be communicated, and what we find here is that these are body-specific gestures. Huh? Body-specific gestures. Your genuflection has a particular meaning that is different than when you bow, etc., etc. Are you with me? The gestures have a specific meaning. Your gesture of genuflection is what? Acknowledging Jesus is present. Jesus is present in his people. Jesus is present in the, in the word when it's proclaimed. Jesus is present in the uh, gospel. Jesus is present in the Eucharist. That was good. It's not a bad thing. You know, I want to say it's a good, it's a good contribution, but it's body-specific. What is that genuflection an indication of? Adoration. Why? I'll tell you why. I'm not genuflecting, bending my knee to just anybody. Like, who do you think you are? Jesus Christ? God. God gets adoration. God gets adoration. Now, if I did the king, it's because he was his anointed one. And I might give him the other knee instead of this one. Or just one and not two. Are you with me? It is a gesture of adoration. Did you hear the thing? In her church, the Blessed Sacrament is in a separate chapel. So when they come in, they don't genuflect. You find your place. She tries to bow. Are we missing something? Jesus? Maybe, no. <laughs> no, you say, you say that. What is your gesture communicating? Adoration. What are you adoring? The space. You say, the gesture, because it is body-specific, should be directed at something specific. That you don't, you know, and we do it, you know, say, growing up, the church uptown burned down. So they needed to go somewhere for mass and everything. They went to the local uh, cinema, you know, the movie theater. And ever after, kids would come in and they would genuflect when they were going to the movies, you know? You say, <laughs> you say that. Now, Jesus wasn't there, but, you know, it's amazing what habits will do for you. If it's a body-specific gesture, we reserve that for the Blessed Sacrament because that is God here among us. How do we show our reverence for the altar. Bowing. Because it is the sign of Jesus in our midst. It's a sign that's not the sacrament, the blessed sacrament, not Jesus with us, body, soul, and divinity, you know, 
but it is a, a sign, and we are showing the crucifix. We do the same thing, a bow to the crucifix. There are a number of things that we would bow to out of reference. So you come in and you genuflect when there is the Blessed Sacrament because it is a way for you to demonstrate your adoration, your reverence for God himself. And you take your place. You've been called and you find your place. No? Now the priest comes in. This is the procession in. And in this particular moment, he's coming from the back, you know, coming in the same way you did. Right? So he comes in, and what does he do? He genuflects. And then? He goes up, and he's going to kiss the Now, generally speaking, the sanctuary, and this you can read in this clever little book here, the sanctuary is supposed to be clearly demarcated from the body of the church. Because it's in the sanctuary where the functions of the head occur. And the body is outside of that. Are you with me? The sanctuary is where the sacrifice will occur. Generally speaking, it's not the area for the faithful. When you come in and genuflect, you don't go into the sanctuary to do the genuflection and then find your place. No? You know it's not your place. But the priest comes in and he genuflects and he goes beyond your gestures. Because there is an identification that is occurring by these gestures that are to communicate the meaning of what is happening. He is taking the place of Jesus himself. And he comes and he enters into the sanctuary. He goes beyond where you go. But he does the same thing that you did. Everything was the same. Whether it was taking and blessing himself with holy water to remind himself of his baptism, the genuflection, but then he goes beyond. And he does what? He kisses the altar. What is the meaning of that body-specific gesture? Showing his love between us, generally speaking, kissing is a rather intimate gesture, isn't it? I mean, if, if I gave you a kiss, okay. that would be okay. <laughs> With me, too. <laughs> there is an intimacy, huh? It's not just reverence. Oh, you can kiss in a reverent way. I'm sure our kiss would be chaste. <laughs> At best. Oh, no. <laughs> no. Just say that. But it is an intimate act. It is a loving act. And what is he kissing? The sacrificial altar. You say, now let's, let's put that together. This intimate, loving gesture of kissing 
is connected directly with the sacrificial altar. You need to know that the priest is not afraid to be sacrificed. That he is not afraid to do the sacrifice, to make the sacrifice. That he does it as Jesus sacrifices himself, as an act of loving submission to the will of God the Father. He is not afraid, and he does exactly what the Father asks. Are you with me? If you want to be like Jesus, then you want to do this as closely as you can. Why? Because I really want to do what it is that Jesus does according to his church. I want to get it right. Why? Because I'm a legalist? No. Because I love my father and I love his son. And I love doing what he asked me to do. It makes me noble. What does he do then? No, he will. He said that he makes the sign of the cross. There was another answer over here. The next thing that he does. It's true, he will do that. He will do it, for sure. He walks over to his chair. You say, okay, now this is interesting. Remember, this was a procession. I said that is purposeful motion, huh? purposeful movement. We know where we are. We know where we are going. What is the point? What is the destination from the time he walks into the church? What is his destination? Where is he going, practically speaking? Very practical. To the chair. Why? Hmm. Generally not. Yeah, I launched the chair. Get the guy a chair, you know. <laughs> Why? Yeah, it's a sign of head and authority. Okay, that's all right. These are all legitimate answers. He is looking to take his place in the assembly. Simply stated. He is looking to take his place in the assembly. And his place happens to be where? on the altar, in the sanctuary, at the head of the body. No? Everything that he has done so far is to show that he is an integral part of this body that has assembled. But he is not simply a part of this body. He is a specific part of this body. He is the head of this body. Are you with me? From the beginning, this whole process then, this immediate process of giving thanks, remember it's a Eucharistic procession, a Eucharistic process, the, the first part of this process was the priest 
finding his place in the body. And that is your role when you come. You were called out of the world, you came into this sacred place, and you found your place within the body. You found your place in giving thanks to God. We're just kind of getting our places. Are you with me? Remember it says here in the intro, the purpose of these rites is to help the assembled people to become a worshiping community. It says they were not yet the worshiping community. They are going to become the worshiping community. And to prepare them for listening to God's word and celebrating the Eucharist. We are all getting into position. We're finding our place. And we are demonstrating who we are within the community by all of these steps, all of these gestures. They're sending out signals. There was a young man in Switzerland that I met. I used to um, help out in parishes in Switzerland when I was in Rome during the... um, school breaks, Christmas, Easter, sometimes in the summer. And uh, I would go because I had students that were pastors, and then I would go and help them in their parishes. So one of them wanted me to meet the seminarians at the seminary. So I meet this young man, and shortly after, he is ordained. Shortly after that, everything goes downward. What happened? This guy, you know, just really gets all upset and everything else. He cannot endure getting up in front of all those people week after week, and they're all looking like you. (laughs) And it just freaked him out. If you cannot take your place within the assembly, and assume and accept your role, what you are doing. And already you've described some of the things that he is going to do because you said that he has a certain intimacy with the sacrifice that he is going to be making as the head of this body. That procession through the people is like, okay, I'm one of you. When we all know, yeah, but only kind of. Are you with me? You may not think so, but it's daunting to get up in front of a group day after day or week after week or whenever it is and celebrate the Mass. You say, something has to happen inside to do that. And you say, when you're really mature, and unfortunately this guy was not mature enough in order to assume the role, you say, when you're really mature, you say, okay, well, I can do that. I don't mind that. You know, somebody else would absolutely crumble. We are coming together to become the worshiping community, to hear the word of God and to celebrate the Eucharistic sacrifice. All of this introductory stuff is about that. What are we doing? So, The whole point when he came in was to find his place and kind of establish who he is in this community. And then what happens?
Let me see, you only did this about five or six times in your life, and therefore you can't remember what happened next. You know, they say that the penitential right, you know, it wasn't bad enough, you know. <laughs> so he does the sign of the cross. We all do it together. This is our sign. This is a basic sign for us. We acknowledge that we believe in the redemption that comes only through the cross. And we all do it. You know, say, Protestants don't do that. Well, some of them do. But we're proud to sign ourselves with the sign of our salvation. And the priest greets the people, and then the penitential rite begins. Now, what is it that we're doing? The big picture? What's the big picture again? We are celebrating Eucharist. Giving thanks. Mass, okay, yeah, it's the same thing. The Eucharist. Giving thanks to God in the person of Jesus Christ. Penance. Thanksgiving. Penance. Thanksgiving. How do these two come together? What's the connection? What's the connection? Well, for one thing, we are glad to have our sins forgiven. Sure. Okay, so we say, we're happy that we have our sins forgiven, and we also, when we get in God's presence, we want to be purified. Is this about purification? Yeah, is it about purification? The penitential right. Acknowledging our humility and... His greatness, okay. Acknowledging our sinfulness, yeah. I want to ask you, because most of you are Catholics, and um, I think we have a sacrament that takes care of the purification thing. I think that we call it penance, although you probably call it reconciliation out here on the plains. No? <laughs> Don't you? I thought so. You know... <laughs> So, you have reconciliation that is specifically for purifying us of our sins, right? So, this is really, I mean, we call it the Eucharist, but it's really the sacrament of penance. I mean, reconciliation. I think not. I'm not saying that they're irreconcilable, but I wonder, why is this penitential right here? What's this Eucharist about? Thanksgiving. What are we thanking for? We're thanking God that Jesus has redeemed us, has saved us. No? That's kind of a nice, generic thing. Jesus has saved us. No? And we're thanking God because Jesus saved us. But what does the penitential rite have to do with that? Say it again. Okay, so we're thanking God for the life he's offering us. 
and we are preparing ourselves to receive that life. But why penitential rite? How does that prepare? Oh, because we need to be in the state of grace. But between you and I, this one will not put you in the state of grace if you aren't already. Then we have a sacrament for doing that. But for the forgiveness of our venial sins, which do not take us out of the state of grace. What's the interesting thing? We, you see why I'm trying to push you? A lot of these things we take for granted, uh, because we do it all the time. You don't have, but I want, I'm pushing on purpose. Some, uh, it's on the other hand. Over here. To acknowledge that we're sinners in order to give thanks. Now I want you to know you have to stop and think about some of this because you have been to Mass a couple of times in your life and you may have heard priests say, for all those times that we have wounded one another and been unforgiving, Lord have mercy. For all the times I beat up my, my siblings and disobeyed my parents, Christ have mercy. For all the times that I stole and spoke badly of others, and was just generally hateful, Lord have mercy. <laughs> now you feel a lot more thankful. Right? It's interesting, if you look at the book and see, they call that, I'll, I, I should come back to that. Remember that, don't let me forget. The penitential rite, what's happening? Some of you are old enough for Johnny Carson. And was it McMahon, Ed McMahon? Is that his name? You know, he kind of get everybody worked up and everything. What's the idea of that prelude that we never saw, generally speaking? He needs to get everyone on board. He needs to get everyone on board. He needs to say, with this penitential rite, we have to go from this celebration being a generic thanks for our having been saved to somehow our buying into it personally. That we have an investment here, so to speak. Jesus did not save me in general. He saved me specifically. Me. And I'm here to give thanks. This penitential rite, I want to see in the context of giving thanks as a way of focusing. Why am I thanking Jesus today, right now, in this, in this celebration? I want to take a moment to, to focus on what it is that's pulling me into this celebration. What do I have to give thanks to God for in Jesus? Because this penitential rite is not for the forgiveness of sins. But the basis of my relationship with Jesus in the end is the forgiveness of my sins. And if I should be grateful for anything, it is that in him I can be free. And I want to buy into that. You say, we can get on a kind of emotional roller coaster, so to speak. We come in on, I don't know, Easter with hallelujahs. Oh, we're not supposed to say that now. You know, and everything. 
you know, leading up and then for all those times, you know, that we were sinners. And, and you say, we're up and down. And now what is that going to be followed with? Glory to God in the high. And you say, well, wait a minute here. Now, is this, is, is this what we're about? There should be a certain building, a certain unfolding that has a coherence here. I am grateful, and I can join in worshipful song and praise of God and even look at my sinfulness because, you know what? I have been forgiven. I have been forgiven. I have sins that I should be grateful to God for because of Jesus. That gives me more reason to pray glory to God in the highest. Are you with me? When we do the penitential rite, and it happens in several different sacraments, it has a somewhat different meaning in each of those sacraments. When we celebrate the anointing of the sick, for example, there is this penitential rite, and it has a different significance there as a person is preparing to be anointed than it does in the celebration of the Mass in which they are giving thanks. Are you with me? We need to look at these rites and see how they are a part of what we are doing. How is penitential practice in this part of the Mass integral to our giving thanks to God? Hopefully it is our personally buying into the, the praise and thanksgiving that is being given because we got a stake in it. Now, there are three different ways in which the church does that. One is with what they call the confidior. I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters. You know that one? They do it here on occasion? That, okay. You say, that one is traditionally, you say, well, there, I confess. What, you say, obviously, it's because I'm looking for forgiveness. Confiteor in Latin means also, and more frequently in liturgical settings, I give praise to God. I, well, not necessarily God, I confess to you, to say, I give praise. It's an interesting thing. Now, we translate, I confess. It's a little more blah, but okay. I'm letting everybody know this is the reality. I have a reason for giving thanks to God. Because I had sins, I have sinned, and I have been saved. I have been freed. The second one is... Just a brief little, Lord, we have sinned against you. Lord, have mercy. May all my, uh, Lord, show us your mercy and love and grant us your salvation. And it should be followed by the Kyrie. Often they forget to do that. Certainly the first one is done all the time. The third one are what they call tropes, these little sayings. And that's the one where, you know, for all those times that you've been, uh, you know, that we have been sinners, you know, and hey, if you read the tropes that are presented by the church as possible variations, you'll hear things like, Lord Jesus, you came to gather the nations into the peace of God's kingdom. Lord Jesus, you are son of God and son of Mary. Lord Jesus, you raise us to new life. Lord Jesus, you uh, bring pardon and peace to the sinner. Do you see any of them saying anything about me? Why? Because it ain't about me. For the English speakers, it is not 
about me. It's about what Jesus has done for me. That's huge. That's huge. When we get to the to the Lord have mercy, no, the Kyrie, you know, we have a little bit of Hebrew thrown in, amen, alleluia, and some Greek, Kyrie, Christe, you know, eleison. Well, when we do that, it is part of a litany. The leftovers that stayed in the Mass an earlier time in church history when they actually did a litany. There are a whole bunch of petitions being made that everybody could sign on to with a resounding pray for us or Lord have mercy. And all that's left now is just Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. All of this, remember, all of this right now is just trying to get us into being worshipful people to get us on the same page. It's working the crowd into a sense of we want to give worship, and it is concluded with the opening prayer, getting everyone together. And who's going to voice the prayer of the whole community is the head of that assembly, the priest. All of that introduction was to get ready for the big events hearing the word of God and celebrating the Eucharist, the sacrament of the body and blood of Christ. It was all leading up to that. The third book that I want to tell you about is this one here. Um, It's amazing how these things happen. I forget Christmas have asked me five years ago to come and do this. And... I put him off and put him off, and eventually I said, oh yeah, of course I'll do it. I think I even did that the first time he asked me, but um, he got me to put it on my schedule eventually, and um, about two months later, because he asked me this a long time ago, at least two months later, Another former student of mine from Rome, now I'm on scene here, you know, I used to be somebody. (laughs) Now my students are. Pastor in one of the parishes in Detroit asked me if I would do a Lenten series every Thursday evening for his parish on the celebration of the Mass and why we do what we do. Where have I heard this before? And so he sends me this book because he wasn't sure that I would be able to do it on my own, you know. (laughs) And it comes from the Federation of Diocesan Liturgical Commissions. Beware. It's the mystery of faith, a study of the structural elements of the order of the Mass. This author, Lawrence Johnson, has done a lot of research to pull into one place, element by element, a bit of an historical research on each of the parts of the Mass. 
This is the authoritative statement about what we are supposed to do. This is the authoritative statement of things we should avoid. This is one man's effort to explain why we do what we do that the authority has presented to us as to be done. So he's kind of in my level of the things. We're several steps removed from being authoritative statements. I want to mention this to you because he really goes through a lot of different... Some of the things in here make me just a little nervous, but that happens when you read liturgists today in the church because sometimes they like to get off you know, on a path that is clearly their own and not necessarily this one here. But for the most part, it is a helpful historical um, sampling of the various elements of the Mass that we have today. Helpful. I don't want to sell it to you. I want you to be aware that it's out there in one place. That brings us to the introduction. That more or less is the time for the break, if I remember correctly. But yes, the absolution, if you notice, is not an absolution. What do we say in the sacrament of penance? In the absolution. No, no, that's what you say. I absolve you. What do we say at Mass in the penitential rite? May Almighty God have mercy on us, forgive us our sins, and bring us to everlasting life. I know that inside and out, and if I didn't talk to you, I would have been able to do it on my own. I don't want to think, think that I never saw this before, you know? That <laughs> but notice, it's not an absolution. May Almighty God have mercy on us is not, I absolve you from your sins. It is a prayer imploring God that he have mercy on us, that he forgive us our sins, that he bring us to life everlasting. This is an, it's an amusing thing. Just in case we don't get there and I get to throw this in, my barbs every now and again, my own little, what do they call those? Uh, yeah, idiosyncrasies, idiotsyncrasies. And these, uh, they say that those priests now who are really with it, you know, at the end of Mass, and may Almighty God bless us in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Have you been there at those Masses yet? You say, he didn't give you a blessing. What does he do when he gives you the blessing? <laughs> when he gives you the blessing, what does he say? May Almighty God bless you. Not, may Almighty God bless us. I go from giving a blessing to making it a prayer. It's no longer about you and conferring a priestly blessing on you as you go back out into the world. It's about us. 
because, you know, I really hate lording it over you and being the king, the shepherd, because then, obviously, I'm treating you as just poor sheep.